For the most part, when strength is rightly understood, I think it's generally been true throughout history that we place a high value on this idea of strength. We value and admire heroes of history like Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill because they demonstrate a lot of personal strength and also strong leadership in the really tremendous pressures that they faced. Um, we admire strength in lesser-known figures, those unnamed figures like the single mother who's working and caring for kids and doing a lot of other things out of love and concern for her kids, or the faithful father who demonstrates a lot of strength um, in leading his family through difficulty and great hardship, or that faithful adult child who shows tremendous strength and patience in caring for an aging parent. These are good things, aren't they? And we're right to admire them. Um, and we want strength in ourselves as well, I'd say. We want physical strength. Think about how much emphasis our, our culture places on working out and being physically fit. We also desire to be mentally strong, that we could work through difficult issues in our minds with a clear mind to find solutions. We value emotional strength to face the trials of life and endure them rather than collapsing underneath their weight. And of course, spiritual strength is something we value as well, that we could resist temptation, that we could persevere in our faith, that we'd be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So I think we can agree that strength is a good thing. God is strong, isn't he? And his strength is absolutely good in every way. And just more briefly, we don't like being weak, do we? I know I don't like being weak. I don't like feeling weak. I don't like appearing weak before others. So given all this, I think it's worth asking, why would we ever want to be anything except strong, right? Or maybe to put it a different way, um, can strength be a bad thing? Is there a time when strength could be bad? And I'd say it is a good gift from God, but with so many things in life, with strength also, we can take something good and make it an occasion for wrongdoing if we're not careful. So let's turn to God's word again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and hear what God's word says about strength and weakness through the pen of Paul. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10, but the sermon will focus uh, really on verses 7 through 10. So let's hear God's word, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast... I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, 
hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. So Paul continues here in 2 Corinthians his defense against false uh, super apostles, as he calls them, uh, who boasted in their work. And if anyone could boast, Paul certainly could. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But he goes on to tell us here in these opening verses why he could boast with these revelations that he received. And also how God spared him from conceit and from thinking that he was strong when he wasn't really as strong as he, he may have thought. So to start with, to kind of rehash, what was the danger that Paul faced? Well, he faced the danger of becoming conceited. Uh, I like the way that the American Heritage Dictionary defined conceit. It read, an unduly favorable estimation of one's own, ability, one, excuse me, one's own abilities or worth. So an unduly favorable estimation of someone's abilities or worth. Or if, you just, if unduly favorable is a bit of a mouthful to say, a too good estimate of one's abilities. So we think too highly of ourselves. And Paul acknowledged that there's a very real danger, given his experiences, given his prominence in the church, that he would become prideful. And in case we missed it, where he opens up verse 7 with, so to keep me from becoming conceited, he ends the same verse with this very same phrase, to keep me from becoming conceited. That was the danger that he faced. Because of what he experienced, he had the real temptation to conceit. And this conceit, as one author put it, had the uh, potential to render him obnoxious and really pretty useless in the church. And I don't think we need to dwell here too long, but we can we can know from experience or just imagine that one who thinks of himself too highly is often obnoxious, right? And, and is not very useful in the church or another um, group that they may find themselves in. We need to remind ourselves, too, that when we think too highly of ourselves, we are often obnoxious as well. Um, this is a particular temptation for Paul, I think. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was inspired by God to write many books of the New Testament. He heroically endured many hardships. We see that near the end of chapter 11, if you look back there. And more directly, these revelations in verses 2 to 4 gave him the temptation to be conceited. God had clearly favored him in a very special way. He had this remarkable spiritual experience. We don't know a lot about it, but it's the type of thing that if it happened today, somebody might write a book about it, get on the New York Times bestseller list, and up on talk shows like Oprah. You'd get a lot of fame potentially from this experience of being caught up in a paradise. Again, we don't know the exact details, but he does say that he was caught up in a paradise. And I thought it was very interesting that we read here that he heard things that cannot be told. Now, we read in passages like Ephesians 3 that God had revealed a mystery hidden for many ages to Paul. That mystery of salvation in the Gospels revealed to him. And he then, in turn, proclaimed that to the church, didn't he? That was his pattern with this mystery. He proclaimed it to the church so that the people in that day and we now can know the mystery of God's grace. But this was different. This seems to be for Paul only. It wasn't disclosed. He said, I cannot utter what it is. We don't need to know what it was, but you can imagine how this type of experience could be uh, a particular temptation to conceit and pride. This was not your everyday Christian experience. Paul could have thought, well, I always kind of thought I was special, but now I know I really am. Or maybe God really needs me in the church. Or maybe God thinks, since he took him out to paradise, maybe he thinks I'm ready for heaven now and I don't need to be sanctified anymore. These types of things could lead him to look down on others, focus on himself more than on the church. So he had to beware of temptations to conceit and pride. And, and so do we as well in the experiences that we have. But thankfully, God in his kindness guards us against these temptations 
So what was the check or the guard for Paul? Let's read verse 7 again. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So we see here clearly that a thorn was given to Paul in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him. So what was that thorn? Well, the shorter answer is that we don't know, okay? If you came here to hear what the thorn was, I don't know, I'm not sure. I was pretty amazed that one author actually listed 12 different possibilities of what people have proposed for what it could be. I don't have a comprehensive list here, but things like depression that he faced, uh, poor eyesight is one that you've maybe heard, epilepsy was one that was thrown out. It could have been the opposition that he faced to his ministry. But in the end, these are all guesses. Uh, But the word refers to a stake or a pole with a sharp pointed end. And from that, we can derive this idea of a splinter or thorn. One author that I found really helpful was Peter Naylor in his commentary, and he likens it to a disabling power comparable to a sharp object stabbed into Paul's body and incapable of extraction. So not very pleasant, not pleasant at all. And the language implies that it was a constant companion of Paul's. It was ever-present in Paul's experience. So do you have a struggle like this? something that's always present, it's hard to get out of your mind, hard to live a day or even go through an hour without feeling the weight of that struggle, maybe you do. And we'll seek to look at God's grace in these situations as we go through this passage. Another question about this thorn, not only what is it, but who gave this thorn? And I'd say that's not entirely clear also to some extent. You see there, there's a a passive voice used. A thorn was given me in the flesh in verse 7. One author called this a theological passive. Satan was clearly involved. It was a messenger of Satan. But as always, God is sovereign, even over the activity of Satan. And if we think about it, Satan almost certainly wanted to hinder Paul in his work, didn't he? That was his goal. And you would think a disabling thorn would be very effective in doing that, be very hindering. But in reality, it seems like Satan would have actually been more successful if Paul would have been unhindered and would have swollen with pride and neglected to rely on God's grace. So again, God is sovereign in these things. He allowed this, as painful as it was for Paul, for his good purposes. And I want to go back briefly to the question of what is it? Not because I'm going to answer that, but because, you know, it's an interesting question. It's worth exploring. We might enjoy discussion about that. We might really want to know, well, what was this thorn? If If we understood what it was, we could maybe better understand what Paul was going through. And that's true, I'd say. But also, I think it's perhaps a mercy that we don't know. If you think about our Wednesday night studies in the Psalms, for those who have been able to join us in those Bible studies for the past number of years, we see the psalmist, different psalmists, many times facing affliction. And many times we don't know the exact details of, those, of that affliction. But we can use the words of the psalmist to cry out to God. And let's suppose that we knew that Paul's thorn was epilepsy. Thankfully, not, I don't think anybody in this room deals with epilepsy, and many Christians do not. So it might be harder to associate with Paul's struggle and see ourselves in the same situation. But not knowing precisely what it was, I think we can better associate with Paul in this uncertain affliction. As one author put it, he said that ignorance is bliss here. So we can use these words of Paul, use the words of the psalmist to cry out to God, knowing that we're afflicted in different ways, not all the same way, but we have the same solution, the same remedy. Let's look into the grace and strength of God Almighty. 
Uh, let's look at Paul's prayer in verse 8. We don't have much detail about what he prayed, but we do see that he pleaded with the Lord about this. This wasn't a casual prayer that he offered up before mealtime. He, he was pleading with God. And it's also worth noting that there's no rebuke recorded here. God doesn't chastise him for praying that. And I don't know of anywhere else in Scripture that he would be chastised for this prayer. So there's no hint that he was wrong to pray. And he prays very explicitly that the thorn would leave him. So he's, he, he wants it to be gone. That's very clear. And we don't see God rebuking him here. So it's not wrong for us to pray to be rid of our trials and struggles according to God's will. We think of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't wrong to pray that the cup would pass from him. It wasn't God's will that it would, but he prayed that prayer. And we also see echoes of Christ's prayer and the fact that Christ pleaded with God three times in the garden. And here Paul pleads with the Lord three times as well that it would be removed. So three times in the face of this painful trial, they both pleaded with God. And I asked the question, have you pleaded with God in prayer? Do you know that feeling of not just praying like we often do, but actually pleading with God in prayer? Maybe you recall certain times in your life where you cried out to God in a deep and uh, intense way that God would answer these prayers and deliver you or deliver someone that you know and love from their trials. And I think in some ways that these are both the, the worst times and the best times to some extent. The worst because we're undoubtedly facing some heavy affliction and it's painful and it hurts and we want deliverance. But also, in some ways, the best because we're looking to God as our only hope. He, we know that he's the only one who can deliver us. We feel our inability and our weakness and we cry out to God. Um, and I can remember distinct times of being low in my life and crying out to God and pleading with God. doesn't make the hurt go away necessarily, but we know that we've taken it to the Lord and that it's in his hands and we can leave it there for him to do as he sees fit. We see God's response to Paul's prayer in verse 9, just the beginning there. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I don't think we should expect to receive a verbal response as Paul apparently received here to our prayers, but we can be assured and confident that God hears our pleading and he answers our prayers according to his will. And we don't see it here in the English, but uh, it turns out that the word sufficient is actually the leading, work, the leading word in the Greek text. And that's pretty beautiful. Sufficient is my grace for you is the idea. God is sufficient. Christ is sufficient in our trials. Paul was pleading for a change in his situation. He wanted the thorn to be removed. But it turns out that his situation didn't actually require a change. Christ and his grace were sufficient for his circumstances and sufficient for Paul. And the, the tenses here of the verbs, which, again, I don't know that we see it so much. I guess we do see it to some extent in the English, but uh, the word said there, the verb said, but he said to me is the perfect tense. So God says these words, his word stands, he will not go back on it. His grace is sufficient for us. And then we see is sufficient in the present tense. God's grace will continue to be sufficient and continue to be enough for us. So Jesus is our sufficient Savior, our sufficient helper. We often think that we need certain things. I know that I think this. We need our workplace conflict resolved. We need our chronic illness taken away. 
We need our strained or broken family ties restored. And I'm not downplaying the weight or the burden of these struggles. And I think we should continue to pray to God for these things and ask him to to help us. But if he doesn't, we need to know that his grace is sufficient for us in our circumstances, in the trials that we face. So do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ is enough? Do I believe this even as I stand here and say those words? That Christ is sufficient for the challenges that we face. The grace of Christ met the challenge of Paul's thorn. That constant companion that he had not only met that challenge, but used it for good in Paul's life. And these things that we read here are written for our instruction and for our encouragement and for our comfort. So may God help us to move forward with confidence in the all-sufficient grace of his son, Jesus Christ. We turn now to Paul's response to, to God's response to him in prayer. So we see that in the second part of verse 9 and then 10 as well. He looks at this thing, this thorn in the flesh, this defining struggle of his life. We can only assume that he, he dreaded it, he despised it, he wanted it to be gone. We know that. And what does he do? He now boasts in the weakness caused by it. We don't read that he boasts in the thorn. I think that might be an important distinction to make, but he does boast in the weakness. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that he would be the more ready recipient of God's power. So he had pleaded with God for it to leave him, and now he boasts in the weaknesses caused by it. Uh, He's content with the trials that come, knowing that when he knows weakness, when he feels weakness, he then can know God's strength more fully. And the end of verse 9 there is, I think, beautiful language that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This has the idea of dwelling over us, like, like God came and dwelt over the tabernacle with his presence and his power, or pitching a tent over us. And I see that as a beautiful picture, uh, not just a quick visit, but the abiding and powerful presence of God in our lives as we face our trials and struggles. And let's remember there's real power here. This isn't just wishful thinking or mental tricks or light, nice little things that we tell ourselves to help us kind of slog through our struggles. There's real power that rests upon us. This is the power that spoke the universe into being. This is the power that ordains all the events of human history. This is the power that God uses, God employs to redeem his people, taking the horrors of the cross of Christ and accomplishing the wonderful salvation that we enjoy. And it's the power that can sustain us even in the hardest of trials. And that real power is ours if we look to Christ in our suffering. So I've tried to kind of work some application uh, through my comments so far, but let's turn to application here, just four relatively quick points. Um, so number one, let's beware of things that lead us to conceit. This is tough, isn't it? Because conceit naturally feels good. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want a favorable opinion of ourselves. But when we're conceited, we tend to think that we don't need God. Uh, a number of months ago, I was reading from <clears throat> excuse me, Paul, David Tripp, and he wrote that weakness is not our problem. That's what we often think, isn't it? This weakness that I'm feeling is so annoying, so painful, I wish it were gone. But he says weakness is actually not our problem. Our delusions of strength are our main problem because they keep us from seeking the grace that we need. I'm sure most of you have heard of King Rehoboam. 
he was Solomon's son. He had a rocky start to his reign. The northern tribes broke away, you know, certainly in part due to his fault and his errors. Then he, he had a lot of sons. He, he made some wise administrative decisions, and he spread them throughout his kingdom, and he was established in his kingdom. But then we read these ominous words in Second Chronicles 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So when he was established and strong, he abandoned God's law. Now, he was no paragon of virtue, I think, before that time, from what we can tell. But scripture makes a clear link here between abandoning God and feeling strong, sensing our security and being established that nothing can touch us in a sense. Then for another king, kingly example, we have King Isaiah later on in 2 Chronicles in chapter 26. Isaiah had some remarkable accomplishments in his reign. I'm going to read 26, 15, and 16. In Jerusalem, he, that's Uzziah, made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. I think we should ponder those words. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. So let's be aware of circumstances that lead us toward or tempt us toward pride and conceit, where we think we don't need God's help, we don't need God's grace. Also, let's uh, be careful not to despise our weaknesses. That's my tendency. I don't like being weak. We think my life would be so much better if the Lord would just take the struggle away. I despise it. Sometimes it consumes me. I think I'd be more free to serve God and more able to serve God effectively if I didn't have said trial in my life. And I think it probably appears that way. But I think we need to ask the question, would our lives really be better? Would God not take it away if our lives would be better? And I say that with hesitation, knowing that some of this congregation and and God's people throughout the world face deep struggles. I think we continue to pray for relief, but by God's grace, may we not despise our times of weakness because that leads us to the strength that God so freely offers to us. Rather, we should boast in our dependence on God's grace and remember that beautiful picture of God, God's power pitching a tent over us, dwelling over us. And so many times in scripture, we see the promise that I will be with you. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. Similarly, let's uh, thank God for reminders of our weaknesses. Uh, sometimes I just think, how can I be so incompetent? I can't accomplish these simple things. I feel like when I was young, I maybe thought that I'd reach a certain point in adulthood where I'd be, I kind of outgrow certain weaknesses and just live my life with confidence and competence. And I have not reached that point yet, and I don't expect to reach it uh, at this point in my life or at any point. So we often see our weaknesses. We see how much room we have for growth. That's when we need to soak up God's power and his sufficiency to help us in our weaknesses. And I think it's worth a quick note here that being content with our weaknesses is not an excuse for laziness. It's not an excuse to be content with sin. Paul says he's content with weaknesses and hardships. He doesn't say, I'm content with my current level of sanctification. I'm not going to try to be any more holy. And we can't say, I'm content with my, my often angry attitude toward my kids, so 
I'm just going to accept that as who I am and not seek to improve upon that. Or I find sharing the gospel difficult, so I'm content with just really not sharing with anybody because I find it pretty challenging. That's not what we're saying here. We, we can be content with the trials that God brings us, but we should, often, we should regularly seek to grow in holiness, grow in grace, and conquer sin in our lives. Let's also be quick to embrace God's strength and to make him our refuge. When we think we're strong, we feel invincible. We think we don't need God's grace. We don't need strength from God. We think nothing can touch us at times. That's a really dangerous spot to be in, isn't it? I don't know how many times the Old Testament talks about God being refuge. I found eight or so uh, quick ref- excuse me, refuge, quick references here in my inex- non-exhaustive concordance, but there are lots of passages that talk about God being refuge in the Old Testament. The strong don't need a refuge, do they? It's the weak. And God put those verses in there because he knows that we are weak and he knows that we need to take and find refuge in God our Savior. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Nahum 1.7. And Faith could probably say it as well. But the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So may God be our stronghold and not fool ourselves. May we not fool ourselves with delusions of strength, but you know, embrace our weaknesses, boast in them so we can have the power of Christ resting upon us. And to close, I want us to not miss the, the parallels to the gospel here. When we think we're strong and we're okay, we don't go to God. But when we acknowledge our weakness, our sin, our inability, our complete incompetence at living how God requires and keeping God's law, and our lack of power to make things right with God, then we're postured to cry out to God for mercy and help and cry out to him for forgiveness. And then the power of Christ rests upon us. And I believe it's in Ephesians, God says that, the, that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And we know this is possible because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so lovingly came to earth. He lived perfectly. He submitted to the Father's will in drinking the cup of God's wrath and fully taking the punishment for sins that he never committed, dying in the place of sinners like us, so that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So if if you have not cried out to Christ, if you have not believed in him, I urge you to cast yourself upon him for mercy, for forgiveness, and you will find that he is gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.